then I began to think, um, what else could you do with this internet thing? Welcome to the Common Errors in English Usage Podcast. I'm here with Paul Bryans, author of the Common Errors in English Usage website and book. I'm the editor of that book and host of this weekly podcast, Tom Sumner. Hello, Paul. Hi, Tom. Paul, I was going to ask you today about the origins of common errors in English usage. How did you get into this business? Well, <laughs> I sort of stumbled into it. Um, when I was teaching, I was in the English department, but I was not a writing teacher. I had students writing papers in my literature classes, of course, and so I had plenty of opportunities to experience their errors. Um, but what I was really interested in when I first started using the Internet, and at first it was BitNet, actually, uh, that I was using, was writing and sending a manuscript to my publisher, uh, and then when various bulletin boards started up, I began to see some possibilities for putting educational materials up. And I had a bunch of study guides to various literary works that I had created for my students. And I thought it would be really handy to have these online. I put a lot of work into them. Maybe other people would find them useful. And in fact, they did. There are some of them that have had a very lively life indeed there are a lot of counters are up in the a million or more hits and then i began to think um, what else could you do with this internet thing my chairman george kennedy had published a little booklet along with his wife uh, called correcting common errors in student writing and he just used it almost as a uh, just a little textbook for his classes. He taught technical writing. And I asked him, would you mind if I took that idea and then did something online that's not a book, wouldn't compete with your book, but and I'd write my own examples and everything. Um, but I'd just like to call it Common Errors in English Usage. And I took that title from him. Uh, a decision I've regretted many times since. <laughs> but um, anyway, I put it up in 1997 with a few little comments, uh, entries rather, and it took off pretty rapidly. Uh, at that time, there were not many educational things on the web. There was a lot of sort of joking around and technical things, but the idea of something useful that... Uh, people would use as a kind of reference work was really unusual. And it began to get reviewed in various sources and attracted a lot of attention until I was getting 4,000 visitors a day and uh, eventually building up to where it is now, uh, coming up on 17 million visits since 1997. Well, that, that's a lot of success, but uh, you, you say you regret that title. Yeah. Well, I was being kind of naive when I was doing this. Remember, I'm, I was not trained as a composition teacher, although I had taught composition at the beginning of my career. In the old days, the barriers were not strong between the writing program and the literature program. Everybody was obliged to teach a section or two of freshman composition. So I certainly had experience doing that. But the whole uh, ideology and 
theory of writing stuff had not influenced college level uh, composition so much when I first started in the late 60s. And it came to be a point eventually where they were very strictly separated from each other. But um, what I came to realize eventually was that the whole idea of errors was very much challenged by linguistics. Uh, linguists tend to see language variation and change as something to be studied and observed and documented, but not prescribed. And that the world of correction and the idea of erroneous errors or errors being corrected um, mostly existed outside the realm of these people. So I found myself getting attacked saying, why are you calling these errors? This isn't an error. And eventually I found myself writing about a lot of things where I didn't think they were errors, like ending a sentence with a preposition, almost all usage authorities say, that's fine. It's just a superstition that people have about that. Um, and so I did a page uh, just called non-errors. That got hugely popular with people who didn't like uh, people like me who were trying to correct their English and who instead like to say, well, here's somebody that says anything goes, which of course is not what I was saying. So it, it, it all got uh, boggled up. I, I eventually went on also to write about things where I'd say, well, this isn't really an error, but if you're in a certain setting, say writing a paper for an English teacher, um, you shouldn't use the word hero for uh, the central character in a novel. It's better to say protagonist, and here's why. And that's it's not the same thing as uh, spelling baloney wrong, for instance. Well, now there are there are non-errors, and there are there is mythology around split infinitives and ending sentences with preposition. Um, you know, tis tis, you can't begin a sentence with a conjunction, uh, things that are patently untrue, but have have been taught um, as, as late as when I was in um, school. But um, uh, I think those have largely gone by the wayside, I, I, at least in my perception, although I I operate as a book editor and I work with writers all the time, so I, I, I do have a a uh, a uh, perspective that's not maybe not as broad as as it could be or should be. Yeah, I don't have any problem uh, referring to a lot of the things I write about as errors. I just wish that weren't the title of the site, because the title is what a lot of people see and grab onto, and they'll. I used to get more of this than I do now, uh, but I think it it comes across is more inflammatory than I meant it to. I meant it to be primarily helpful. Uh, I agree with you. I I I wish it had a different title too. But what would that? What what what? what, what do you have an idea in mind? I don't really. But the thing, <laughs> I, I don't even okay. think about it because once you've got um, many many people having bookmarked your page, and many references and published sources referring to you, and a book published that's based on the site, you cannot change your title. That's a huge mistake because people will lose you. They'll just lose track of you. And it always drives me crazy when some big company or educate, usually this is an educational project, 
people say, you know, this is really not as well designed as it should be. Let's move it to a different ser server, get it a different URL. Let's change the title while we're at it. And now let's make the layout different. Oh, it's so much more cool now, except nobody can find it because all the links go to the wrong place or they don't, they sometimes uh, a resource has been moved from one university to another. So they can't even put a forwarding up because the university that abandoned it doesn't want to forward it to the new one. Mm -hmm. That happened yep. for a science fiction research database that I used to use all the time. Mm -hmm. Well, I agree that it can't be changed uh, uh, for practical reasons. I just wondered if, there, if you had an idea in mind of, of what that alternative title might be. I've thought about it too, but I can't really come up with anything that says what this says. And it's a, it is a problem because for all the reasons that you said, uh, there is a kind of a knee jerk, there can be kind of a knee jerk reaction to it. But um, my solution was just to redefine error, which I've done in the introduction to the book and in the introduction to the homepage of the website so that it matches what I'm doing rather than what people may think I'm doing. Well, there's an element too in what you do that, um, uh, while some things may let, let's take the let's take the curious case of of comprise and comprised of and composed right. of um, now comprised of uh, such and such comprises right. John Paul George and Ringo comprises comprise the, the Beatles excuse me comprise the Beatles <laughs> so. Is, I mean, I, I can't get any of this right. So John, Paul, George, and Ringo comprise the Beatles. And the Beatles are comprised of composed John, of. Paul, George, and Ringo. Yeah. Now Composed of. Excuse me, composed of. Yeah. Now, almost almost nobody gets any of that right. They, they, well, I'm not getting it right. So comprise, <laughs> composed. And, and I have and, to stop and think about it. Sure, yeah. So it's, com yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> so, on the one end, you have uh, such and such compri comprise this, and then on the other end, you have, you know, this is composed of, uh, when you flip it around. But, so, uh, there's no, there's no, um, uh, n there's no practical reason why you can't say John Paul, or, sorry, the Beatles, that Make, let me make sure I'm making the correct error. Um, <laughs> the the Beatles are comprised of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. That is that is very prevalent usage. Yes, but when you say there's no practical reason, I'd say there's no theoretical reason. There is a practical reason, and that is if you're writing for publication or for a teacher. Um, now, not a lot of people write for editors. I do. But uh, a lot of people certainly write for teachers. You're going to get caught out on it. And so it's good to know that. The, the difference in my approach from some of the more intolerant usage guides is that I never say, this is absolutely wrong. This can never be right. And so on. What I try to do in most cases is say, well, it's good to know about this distinction because even though you may be saying it the same as all the people around you, there are certain people who can have a lot of influence over your writing and maybe over your life um, who make the distinction. So it's good to know about that. 
it's like you're say from Hollywood and everybody around you wears sunglasses, but you go to pitch a movie to an investor who's never dealt with Hollywood before and he wants to see your eyes. And, you know, you've got to know, well, here, sunglasses are not cool. So that's one of the kinds of things that I've spent a lot of time on. So I don't have to decide, is this wrong or is this right? I just have to try to figure out who thinks this is wrong and what kinds of consequences are there if you don't please them. Sometimes I say, forget about it. They're just nuts. And other times I say, eh, this will not probably bother most people, but it's worth thinking about. And other times I say, this will get you into big trouble with the wrong audience. Well, that's, I guess that's sort of the point I was leading to is, and, and you're right. Yeah. So there's no theoretical problem with it, but the thing that's nice about it is it is nice that to have somebody point this out to you that, um, there's a certain, uh, sec segment of the population that is going to consider you foolish if you use, if you, uh, say tender hook instead of tender hook, um, and a lot of linguists and some other writers are content to say, don't listen to those picky people, just do whatever you want. And uh, I think that's doing a disservice to readers and writers to encourage them to just ignore what the preferences are of some people who may be very important to please. Well, yeah, that's true. There are some of those around, I suppose. But, I, but my experience with most linguists is that that's a bit of a mischaracterization but but it it, it can their scholarship can c certainly come off that way <laughs> when, you, when you look at some of the when you look at some of the some of the things that that have that have been written by linguists over the over time uh it certainly can come off that way and there's the other criticism of that which is um, well you you know all of these boundaries, and you understand all of the um, nitpickiest of the nitpickiest of the nitpicky stuff that that can be that people will unearth in your own writing. Why are you h trying to hide people from the these facts? Yeah, the way I put it, um, I came up with this formula, which I'm pretty pleased with, is that linguistics says that language change is a social process. And that's how we have to understand it and study it so that observing how it changes and trying to keep up with those changes by, say, adding uh, definitions or new words to dictionaries and so on is the, the really important task and not trying to stop change. And what I was saying is, yes, language change is a social process and you're skipping one of the most important parts of that social process and that is some people are pulling back resisting that change some people are tugging forward others are oblivious to it going on and if you don't study all of those factors not just the ones that are pushing change but the ones that are resisting change and don't if you wind up siding only with the the changers then you're being judgmental you're saying change is right Resistance to change is wrong. I'm the one being objective and saying, this is something going on. Isn't it interesting that some people will get really upset if you use ain't in your writing, but a lot of people will think it's just fine and others will say it depends on the context. 
To me, that's more descriptive than saying that something is, is uh, acceptable now that didn't used to be and just making a fiat about it. Mm-hmm. That's right. Well, you're going to, you, you do as a writer or as a speaker, you do constantly have to gauge your audience and, um, and you point out a lot of this, a lot of the practicality of um, learning to use, learn, learn to use, because some of the most conservative non-changers are your bosses <laughs> or people right. who, who would hire you if you look like you didn't know what the difference was. And the other one I've seen turn up a lot in, in columns and in posts by women on the internet is that on dating sites and so on, which I do not frequent, but um, that if a, if a man misuses English, according to their opinion, they just immediately discard him as a potential date. Yes. That could be very important to a lot of people. That's right. And conversely, if you are particularly good at it, uh, you can attract people too. It's like having a sense of humor or, or, or you know, there's certain characteristics and that's one, you're right, that's one of them that I've seen. Another one I know from people I've talked to, but also I've seen in published form, is is uh, hire people hiring, uh, interviewing people for jobs who say if I get a job application and there's uh, one English error in it, I just throw it aside. I've got more applicants than I need. That's just one way to screen it out. So if this person doesn't know how to use English properly, they don't get it. I think that's horrible. <laughs> you know, the the best person might be somebody who disagrees with you on pronoun usage but in fact that's what's going on out there in the real world in a lot of cases and that's really important to know well i i've been guilty of that myself as uh, receive uh, a lot of correspondence from freelance editors and um there was one in particular that i set aside and never bothered responding to and and i got a follow-up phone call and um the woman asked me um, uh, if, you know, what our needs were for editorial services. And I said, I said, well, I don't think we'll be using yours. And, and she said, well, um, why? Can I ask why? And, and I said, I, I, I pulled out her cover letter and I said, let me read you the first sentence. And in the first sentence that she wrote, as soon as I read it back to her, she sighed <laughs> in recognition that there was this this uh, hugely glaring um, problem, uh, what we would call a dangling participle, um, suggesting that um, uh, the 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 editorial service company itself had done some something uh, that was could only be done by a human, and I forget what the I forget what the exact wording was, obviously, but it was something to the effect of uh, something like this. Um, Having recently packed up boxes and relocated to Portland, Star Editorial Services is ready to serve you. So that it sounds as if the editorial service itself was packing boxes. Um, No no human involved, just just the business. Uh, Something like that. Uh, I think it was a little more egregious or a little more identifiable. But um, you get the point. Well, can we talk some more about the evolution of the site? I kind of pulled this off the topic. <laughs> yeah, no, I'd, I'd like to get back to that. So 
you brought the site up to four thousand visitors a day. Now you're getting seventeen. Yeah. Uh, you've, you're up to sev- almost seventeen million uh, in 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 its history. What year did you start the site? Nineteen ninety-seven. Ninety since nineteen ninety-seven. Yeah, and it's amazing how how small the internet really was at that point. But I began to get just deluged with people saying, oh, about this one and that one. And I began to see, okay, this person is just wrong. (laughs) Um, And I began to develop ways of of doing research. At first, I was just working with other usage manuals, including my colleagues, and seeing, well, what do other authorities have to say about it? And I just saw myself as, as doing an online version of something that was in print and many different forms already. But then I started digging into uh, using the Oxford English Dictionary online, which fortunately, as an educator, I had free access to, and buying all kinds of reference books, and then eventually using the web, where I could do things like put in a, a misspelling and see how common it was, compare it to the standard spelling, um, Google sometimes makes that difficult, but um, anyway, there are there are all kinds of uh, things I've searched for. I've searched for things in Google Books. I've written about this on my blog, uh, if people want more details. But um, it began to be much more complex, and it just multiplied and multiplied. And when I, I realized after a while that I had sort of stumbled without intending to into a process that's somewhat like the American Heritage uh, usage book, where they have a usage panel of people who are considered authorities, and they ask them, well, what do you think of this usage? And then they vote on it, and they actually will tell you sometimes, well, 60% of the pa- panel thought this was bad usage, but 40% said it's fine. Well, what I was doing is essentially having an open-ended, uncontrolled conversation with picking people on the internet. And if I got a lot of people attacking a particular usage and saying, okay, this seems to be something a lot of people dislike, and then I would, that would set me off on further research for it. it so it's not like I hatched all this out of my own brain. I viewed myself as mainly being an editor, really, and an educator, somebody that took this material uh, that came to me in many different forms and then trying to make it readable and eloquent and when I could funny or at least entertaining and then uh, post it where people could get access to it this is essentially crowdsourcing yeah and yeah, how, it really is. how did you, how do you determine what a common error is so the you, you focus on the word error how about common well here's a really brainless way of doing it you put the word in quotation marks or the phrase and then search that together with the word error or the word wrong, <laughs> or mistake, and see if other people at other sites have written about it as an error or mistake. And you see, um, is this just one random message from somebody on a bulletin board, or is this uh, where a bunch of English teachers have been talking together? Um, I used to participate in an English usage group um, that was a Usenet group. And uh, I found those people were just way too high-tempered and <laughs> <laughs> trolly to, to be very useful after a while. I find just disconnected from them. But I could go there sometimes and say, well, what do you guys think? Because these were people, you know, a large audience of a hundred or hundreds of people who really cared about English and had given a lot of thought to it. So I could get a lot of feedback very quick. 
Um, so there are all kinds of, of ways of doing it. I, I just got an email yesterday from a Southerner ranting about the spelling Y apostrophe A-L-L. Mm. And um, it's clear to me after many, many, many emails of this kind that Southerners are definitely split <laughs> how y'all should be spelled. And that's what I say. And the people on each side still are going to write me angry messages saying, you people are just so wrong. These Northerners, you know, <laughs> carpetbaggers bringing their bad spelling to the South. <laughs> and I just have to say, all right, whatever. <laughs> well, uh- that's the problem with with this field is you can you can certainly come across people who have um uh they have entre- very strongly held and entrenched ideas about how how a certain thing should needs to go and sometimes it was a matter of disabusing me of my presumptions like one of the phrases that drove me nuts was shrimp scampi italians Scampies for shrimp, but then um, over time, uh, people made lots of different arguments. Some people arguing that scampi are a different kind of shrimp from mm-hmm. other kinds of shrimp. And then the, the killer for me is that, okay, scampi is an Italian world. What you're saying is this is shrimp killed, uh, cooked Italian style, as if you were going to call it scampi. Well, that makes a sort of sense. So I gave up on it and I took shrimp scampi off. So what, what what had been your point about shrimp scampi? What, what, what was the well, it's just redundant. I see. I see. Oh, okay, shrimp scampi. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, it's like... Um, well, there's the tea. There's chai tea. Right, chai tea. That still bothers me because I have a deep investment in, in India. I've written a book about Indian literature and taught about India. I feel like I've visited India. And to me... Chai is just the word for tea, and it's true that they may put, use it with milk and spices in India often, um, but chai tea to me is redundant, and I don't see why you'd have to use it, because anybody that wants a chai knows that it's tea. But um, I, I can see a lot of people making the same argument that uh, for that is for shrimp scampi, but uh, that's just one where I've dug my heels in and say, yeah. Just call it chai. That'll do it for the Common Errors in English Usage podcast. Send your comments, questions, and feedback to commonerrorspodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.